expository preaching. And what I mean by that is taking uh, a book of the Bible like what we just did with the Gospel of John and preaching from John 1.1 to John 21.31 and preaching through those books is perhaps the most helpful way to teach and preach the text, the, the true authoritative Word of God because it allows God's people to learn the whole books of the Bible. And so I intend to give a steady diet of that as the, as the pastor. And I have said from here that when we finished the Gospel of John, we would move to Genesis and go from chapter 1 through chapter 11. But in my study, and I guess the Lord has led, I wanted to do five weeks on the church before we go and do the expository teaching in Genesis. And what I want you to know is I think there's biblical theology, which is what I just described, expository teaching. I think there is systematic theology, which is more what I will be doing over these next five weeks, taking a topic and systematically looking at the different scriptures as it relates to the topic of the church. And then there is practical theology. So biblical, systematic, and practical. I think all of those are important to the church, but I think it's most important to teach in an expository way most of the time. There is a time and a place for a systematic study, which is what we're going to do over the next five weeks. So the, type, uh, the title of the sermon is, What is the Church? What is the church? And this is a, uh, a book. It's called The New City Catechism. And if you're a parent of young children, I would encourage you to pick one of these up and use it with your children because it will give them a biblical framework for the scriptures. So it has in it the question like this here. How can we glorify God? And then on the other side, it says we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and laws. And then it gives you a verse to go with that. I think this is excellent. And so I recommend it to you. But also, I'm going to use their definition to answer my question right out of the gate so that you have an answer to the question, what is the church? And this is their, uh, after studying the scriptures, coming from the scriptures, their answer to the question, what is the church? This is the answer. The church, and we've already read this earlier, is a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together. That's an interesting statement. That the church's, the quality of our life together prefigures the kingdom. In other words, it's an example of what the kingdom of God should be. And it says their love for one another. So the church family, this church, our local church here, the quality of our life together should represent the kingdom of God. That's a tall order. That's a high bar. 
So the onlooking world would be able to see the truths of the gospel through our relationships with one another. That's a, that's a tall bar, a high bar, I mean. How can that happen? Jeremiah 20.13, I think, gives us a glimpse, a beginning place for how the church can be what God has called the church to be. In Jeremiah 20.13, it says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So there's this prerequisite for really knowing God. It's to know him, you must search for him with all of your heart. So this leads me to, to say, we don't learn, like sitting here right now, we don't learn good theology or doctrine. We earn good theology, theology and doctrine. You can't just pick it up sitting there listening to a pastor. Your heart, your heart must be seeking him with everything in it. If you really want to know God, it will take you pursuing him with all of your heart. You can't just sit in the pew and get good theology and doctrine. It must be earned. And who earns it? You must earn it. And why is that important? Why is good theology and doctrine important? A.W. Tozer said it this way. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see... And y'all know this, you've, you've experienced this. If we foolishly go through life and we give ourselves, let's say, to instant gratification, it will take us down destructive paths in our life. Either we've been down there or we have friends and family that have. If we give ourselves to instant gratification, so for example, we must learn discipline in eating or we become obese and unhealthy. We must learn discipline in finances or we come to debt and ruin and great stress and anxiety. We can't be given to whatever I want, I'm just going to buy. That's instant gratification. In our physical desires like sex, we can't do whatever we want to do or we'll ruin our marriages and we'll ruin our families. Here's where I'm going. God has given us his word, he's given us his spirit, and he's given us his church as means of grace to save us from ourselves and to make much of him because he is worthy. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2, look with me there for a moment just, just to make this point. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul is speaking to the Romans, Christians, and he says to them in Romans 12, 1 and verse 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when you came here today, you thought, well, this will be my worship. I'll go to church, and this will be my worship. What the Scriptures are saying is, oh, no, that's just a small, small, small part. God is saying Your body should be a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. That's not a Sunday thing. That's every day, all day, 24-7, 365, our entire lives are a living sacrifice to God. And then he goes on, he says, do not be conformed to this world. You notice that he's saying, "You're, you're being conformed. He says, don't be. There's an assumption that you are being, you are being conformed to the world. Don't be, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, what does that mean? It means if in our devotional life, sometimes we do it and sometimes we don't. I mean, we're all busy, right? If we ignore coming together, as it says in Hebrews, do not not neglect coming together as a body of believers. If we ignore the assembly and the worship of God in the local church, if we take lightly the means of grace that God has given us, we will not find the truth that liberates our soul and reveals a holy God to us. And here's the thing. You might say, as my father used to say to me about his smoking, which wasn't true, um, there was a cloud when you walked in our living room that just hovered over the living room. And anytime I walked out of the house, people would say, man, you smell like a cigarette. I'm like, of course I do. My dad smokes four packs of cigarettes a day, and I live in that house. And he would say... My smoking isn't hurting anybody but me. And now we all know how, how false that was. I'm probably going to die of lung cancer too, you know. But uh, the truth of the matter is this, that when we neglect God's church, when we neglect his word, when we neglect these things, it, it isn't just our problem. It becomes the problem of those that are closest to us, like our wives and our children and our family, because we're not building our lives anymore on a rock. We're building our lives on sand, that when the storms come, it will carry us away. God's church, and especially his local church, is one of his primary means of transferring grace and truth into our lives that we might see and then treasure and then worship the one who is worthy of our greatest affections and allegiance. One of the primary ways you become a godly follower of Christ is his local body of believers, the church. So today's sermon can be summarized in two parts. What is the church and what is the purpose of the church? What is the church and what is the purpose of the church? I'm going to give you three things to describe 
what the church is, all right? The first one is the church is universal and local. Universal and local. Second one is the church is visible and invisible. And I'm going to unpack these. The third one is there is a true church and there is a false church. So let's look at the first one. Um, if you want, you can look with me at Romans 16.5. Romans 16.5. This is under the idea that the church is local and universal. In Romans 16.5, it says, Paul is writing the Romans, he says, Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, and he's got a name there that's Greek. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Notice what I'm getting at with this text is it was a house church. It was a very small local church. So the church is local. Paul was writing to this very small local house church. The church is local. But then over in 1 Corinthians 1-2, at the beginning of the book of Corinthians, Paul is writing them and he says, listen to, listen to what he says to them. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, and then he says this, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says, all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just local, but it's universal. All those who call upon the name of Christ. So right now, I mean, there's different time zones, and so people are worshiping at different times. But you know, there's this local body of believers here in Atlanta that are all kind of worshiping at about the same time. But all over the country, there are true believers who come together. It is the universal church, and they're worshiping in their countries, and they're worshiping in their languages. And let me just say, they're worshiping in really different ways than we do. Their music is really different. They look really different. And it's all sincere and true worship of God. Now, obviously, there are some false churches, and we're going to get into that. But just because you look different and the music sounds different doesn't mean it's not the true church. So, then you move forward. The church is invisible and yet visible. The church is invisible and yet visible. Hebrews 12.1. I think there's a slide for that. Maybe you won't have to turn there. Michael, do I have a slide for that? Nope. So you will have to turn there, or I'll read it to you. Hebrews 12.1. Sorry, Michael, didn't mean to call you out. That was on me. In Hebrews 12.1, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let me stop right there. Many of you have daddies and mothers, brothers and sisters. They're a part of that cloud Amen. right now. 
And as Christians, we have this great hope, this great hope. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, isn't that interesting that because of them and they're, they're there, he says, let us also, like they did, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Some of the older generation that are sitting here, just ask them how fast life goes by. I'm old enough now to know. It's a blink. It's a vapor. Put off the sin. Put off the things that are holding you back and run the race with endurance. God is calling his church to run a race. The invisible church is invisible because many, as I said, have died. They are dead in Christ. But the visible, <clears throat> the visible church can often not be the true church. Do you understand what I just said? The visible church can often not be the true church, but the invisible, the invisible church is the church as God sees it. What I'm saying is this, even as you sit before me, even as some of you may in your own heart believe with all of your heart that you really are believers and followers of Christ, I would be willing to put money on some are mistaken based on what the Word of God says. Only God can see the true church. That is the invisible church, the true church, those whose hearts are truly His. And when we look at each other, we can only see the visible, and the world can only see the visible church. But God sees it all, and He knows. He sees the invisible church. So when Paul writes his letters to these churches, these epistles, uh, to the Corinthians and to the Colossians and to the Philippians and to the Ephesians, he's writing the visible churches. But he knows some of them truly are not followers. So that leads me to there are true churches and there are false churches. How do we know the difference? That's important. In some cases, it might be really difficult to know how much wrong doctrine, how much wrong teaching does it have to be before we could say that's not a true church. I mean, how far down that path can you go before you have to draw a line? There are several clear cases in our country that should help us see what's a true church and what's not a true church. For example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, it does not hold to any major Christian doctrines concerning salvation on the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Therefore, I have to say as a pastor and one that is supposed to handle the Word accurately, the Mormon Church 
is not a true church. And those that follow the Mormon tradition will not go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. It is clearly a false church. Similarly, the Jehovah's Witness teach salvation by works, not by trusting in Jesus alone. This is a fundamental, foundational doctrine. When you deviate from grace and grace alone being the way that we enter into the kingdom of God, you are a false church. So the Jehovah Witnesses also must be considered not a true church. When the preaching of a church conceals the gospel message of salvation by faith alone so that the gospel message is not clearly proclaimed, and it has not been proclaimed for some time, that church is a false church. Now, the Bible gives us several metaphors. Remember, the first part of this is what is the church? The second part is what's the purpose? The first part's a little longer. The second part's shorter. The Bible gives us several metaphors to help us understand the church. I have a definition for metaphor for those of us who've been out of English for a little while. I don't know that Michael will have it up there, but I have it in my notes. There we go. Metaphor. A thing regarded as a representative or symbolic of something else, especially something abstract. So when we're talking about the church, what is the church? I've said it's visible, it's invisible. It's universal, it's local. That feels kind of abstract. So I think the Lord gives us some metaphors to help us kind of get our head around what the church is. And so he says in one place in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, he says, it's like the human body. The church is like the human body. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's a few things here that I really, really love. One is, God has called you to be a different part of the body than he's called me to be. And I should find freedom in that. If I was supposed to be in the body of Christ an ear, and you're supposed to be a hand, but I look over there at your gifting and calling, and I think to myself, wow, He's a hand. Look at all the things he gets to do. And I try with all my might to kind of be like you. Well, now the problem is the body, this local body, is deaf because I'm not being the ear that God called me to be so that I could tell you what I'm hearing because the body should function together. So whatever your gifts are, you should function in those gifts. And when you do that, the body is edified. It should increase our dependence on one another, I think is what God is saying. And there are some parts of the body, it says, that we might deem, less, we might deem them less valuable. 
But he says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's a mistake. And then it also speaks to we should never forsake the assembling of the church because when we do, parts of our body aren't here. And, and that part of the body that isn't here isn't getting infused with the rest of the body of Christ. And so that part is like a Frankenstein arm that's been cut off and not engrafted back into the rest of the body, and it's not being able to be used. And so when that part of the body sits over there long enough, it begins to die. The body must be together. We must work together as one body. And then another metaphor in 2 Corinthians 6, 8, the Bible often talks about the body of Christ as a family. And in this text, in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, I should say, he says, and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I will be a father to you. You will be like sons and daughters. You ever think about it like this? That if really everything is about, and I believe this is true, knowing our God and enjoying him forever, could it be, just think about it, that God created family for us to see him and for us to see what he is up to? That really family is kind of like a secondary thing so that we can see the beauty of him calling us sons and daughters. That that's the primary thing. So he gives us family so that when I had my first child and that little boy came out into the world, you can only experience that. It's an enlightening thing as a parent. And when that happened, there was a joy that I had never experienced before in my life. God is saying, you, my people, are my sons and daughters. In other words, just like you would do, you'd move heaven and earth for your children. I know you would, because I would. God will move heaven and earth for his children. And so you may be in the middle of something that's really, really hard. But I want you to know he's a father. And he cares more for you than you could ever care for your children or I could ever care for mine. He's a father. And that's how he reveals himself. He could have revealed himself a hundred other ways. We, we could not even have families if he wanted to do it a different way. But he wanted us to experience family because we could connect that to who he is to us. And so then he also says that the church is like a bride. Another metaphor in Ephesians 5.32, Charlie read this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.32. The mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, 
One of the things, at least the old school way of thinking about marriage, which I think is the biblical way to think about marriage the way I'm saying it, is that God calls us to purity, to chastity, that we, at least in his original design, which I think is still the best design, and if people would practice it, it would bring great, great joy to their marriages. We're called to enter into marriage in purity and in holiness, not having given ourselves to somebody else before that time. So when God uses this metaphor, I think part of what he's saying to us, the church, is you should strive for purity. You should strive to be holy, to present the church to him as pure and holy. And one fringe benefit of that is the world will look at that and say, they're different. That's different. And by your good works, they'll praise your father. And so another metaphor given for the church is in John 15, 5. Many of us know this passage well. Jesus says to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What, what the picture is here is the the branches have no sap, no, no life-giving uh, sap to flow through them if they're not connected vitally to the vine. And so God is saying, depend on me, rely on me, rest in me, rest in me, rest in me, let my life flow through you. I will live my life through you. Church, God's people, rely on me. And then finally, the last metaphor I'll give, there are, there are others, but the church is viewed as a new temple in 1 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter 2.5, it says, you yourselves, and I love this wording, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Do you know that when we come in here on Sunday as a group of followers of Christ, the Bible is saying it's like living stones coming together and the spiritual house being put together. And he says to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think this idea of a new temple, a spiritual house, is that we should recognize when we come together, God is with us in an unusual way. God is always with his people. But when his people come together to worship him, it is like this new temple, and he is with us in a special way. And there's one of the benefits of being a gathered local church. And so you wake up one morning and you just don't feel good and you just decide, you know, is it really that important to go to church? 
My answer is, yes! Yes, emphatically, yes! Not because Clint needs you here because we only have a few people and I'm going to be upset if i got to preach to ten people. That's not the issue. The issue is you. You need this. It is a means of getting grace into your life. And mine. All right, the second part, I told you we're going to run through it a lot quicker. The purpose of the church. The purpose of the church, I have evaluated this years ago, and I came up with a way to remember it that I think is biblically sound. And it is three things, and they start with an E and end with an S. The three things are the purpose of the church. One is to exalt the sovereign God, to exalt the sovereign The second one, and I'm going to come back, is to equip the saints. See the E's and the S's working there for you? You can remember this. And then the third one is to evangelize sinners. So exalt the sovereign, equip the saints, evangelize sinners. And under this idea of exalt the sovereign, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms like we did, and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Now, I want to say, and I think I have it up here, when we were working on, and I know you can't see it, grab one of these if you would, This is the the purpose statement or the mission statement of our church, and I think it grows right out of these three things. This idea of exalting the sovereign, the first part of our mission statement says, FBCC exists to spread the supremacy of God. Exalt the sovereign. We exist to spread the supremacy of God. But then when you come to the second part, equip the saints. Ephesians 4, 12 and 13 says this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I'll stop right there. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So in a church, who should do all the work of the ministry? Me, right? I'm the guy that's getting paid. I'm the guy that should do all the work. (laughs) On that one, I disagree. My whole point is that we, the body of Christ, are supposed to be in this together. Jesus prays in Matthew 9, 36, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. It can't just be the pastor. It must be the lay people, and the congregation. We're in this together. And so the second part of our mission statement says, by treasuring Christ together. By treasuring Christ together. And then the third part, evangelizing the sinners. In Matthew 18, Jesus, I mean 28, 18, Jesus comes to the disciples, and it's the Great Commission. And he says, all authority on heaven and earth 
have been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, he will be with us to the end of the age. And so in our mission statement, it says, and building laborers in the local church. By building those laborers, we're able to send to the world people to do the work of the ministry. So it's growing right out of what I believe the purpose of God's church is, to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to evangelize those who do not know him. So, my prayer for our church is that God would raise up people from this local church that's lives make so much of Christ that it displays his glory to an onlooking world. The second thing that I pray is that our love for one another would reflect diversity, humility, deference. I defer to you and joy. And then third, that we would go and make disciples. We would have a culture of evangelism, a heart for our neighbors, and a mind that is saturated with the truth and the Word of God. That is my prayer for us. Let's pray.